You're listening to the Business of Pharmacy podcast with me, your host, Mike Kelzer. Well, hello, Eric. Hello, Mike. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, no, I'm very happy to be here. For those that haven't come across you online, introduce yourself to the listeners and tell them what's hot, why are we talking today? Yeah, so my name is Eric Packman. I'm the president of a nonprofit uh, drug pricing research shop called 46 Brooklyn Research. And I'm also the president of Three Axis Advisors. Our mission at 46 Brooklyn is really just to provide uh, as much transparency into drug pricing data that's out there. We really very much feel like this should be living in the public domain. And so we do everything we possibly can in order to clean it up and and allow people to use it within public visualizations. I've done a little research on you because you've got <laughs> such a interesting history that we would spend an hour just catching up to how you got here. <laughs> But let me share with the listeners this. It was not planned. <laughs> no, let me share with the listeners this. Somehow you went from running a railroad to all of a sudden being the manager of 22 pharmacies. How in yeah. the world did that jump happen? <laughs> Uh, you have to uh, thank my wife for that one <laughs> and just kind of chance, you know, um, it's kind of, kind of who, you know, right. And who you meet, uh, throughout, throughout, uh, this, this varied life that I've led. Um, I met an individual, uh, when I was at, at CSX, the railroad that I was working for, I wasn't running the railroad as you say, but I was, you know, contributing <laughs> as best as I possibly could. Sure. And, um, this individual, uh, he, I had gone to Harvard Business School several years before him. He left, uh, went to Harvard Business School, came back, and had to, it happened to have a connection within the Dayton, Ohio area, which is where my wife is from. And and I had, as I, as I tell people, I had been um, basically crushing her dreams for the better part of a decade, telling her that there was no way I was ever going to find a, find a job in Dayton, Ohio. And yeah. I thought that was true. Um, just so happens that that my good friend who had gone to Harvard Business School came back to CSX for a little bit and then left to go run a, a pharmaceutical wholesaler. And they had a series of, you know, or a group of, of uh, 22 community pharmacies. And he had been threatening for about a year, year and a half that, Eric, I, I need someone, you know, to bring some operational discipline yeah. to, to, to help run these. I don't necessarily care if you, if you know the pharmacy world. I had studied many, many industries throughout my career. And so I, I never really believed him that he was yeah. going to call and ask me to make the jump. And uh, But I always had it in the back of my mind because I knew if I could get my wife back to Dayton, Ohio area, which is where she grew up, then that would make all of us, the whole family, very, very happy. So um, one day he called and he said, it's time. And literally within a month, I was I was out in Dayton digging through the bowels of our of our data, trying to put everything together, trying to understand all these contracts that 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 all these pharmacists are struggling with right now. Um, I was in the throes of it very very quickly, and and I tell people, Mike, that um, had I known what this was all about, I would have never left my job on the railroad. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, Eric, a lot of the listeners are in pharmacy through nepotism of, uh, you know, a, a good percentage more than maybe other other industries. You had your chemical engineering degree. When you had your sights set on a Harvard MBA, what were you thinking you would be doing 10 years after getting out of Harvard? 
Back then, I was I was pretty naive <laughs> as far as what I, you know, would want to do with yeah. my life. I wanted to go to Wall Street. I wanted to be an investment banker. I wanted to be a you know equity research analyst. I wanted to eventually go be in private equity, hedge fund world, that kind of stuff. Um, but I say that probably a little too confidently or too strongly. Like I didn't really know that. I, I just knew that. Hey, if Harvard's going to accept some schmo that went to a state school like me, then I'm going to go. You know, and and so I, I really just applied to. Um, three of the top business schools and told myself and told my wife at the time, if I get into any of them, I'm going to go and then we're going to figure out where, where I go from there. Um, I knew I needed some sort of change. I thought it was Wall Street. And so that's why I went. Why'd you need the change from chemical engineering? I knew that I was interested in in business management. Gotcha. I, I thought, again, I thought it was Wall Street at the time. And it's very difficult to make the jump from chemical engineering. What they say about business schools, the best reason to go is if you want to press the reset button. And yeah. so I was yeah. looking to press the reset button at that time. I was looking for two years. I shouldn't say off because Harvard is not taking two years off. It was very difficult for me. But um, I was looking to kind of just explore and, and see what was out there. But I was too anchored to the whole Wall Street path going in. And that's where I ended up going. Did you see something in chemical engineering? I'm working as an engineer and I want to run a company like this. Or were you like, I want to get out of this area? I probably wasn't. Mike, I really wasn't thinking that much about it. <laughs> I mean, I, I knew that I wanted more exposure to the management side of things. And I knew what, what better place to get it than a, than a Wharton or a Harvard or something like that. And, you know, what was I was like 20... 25 at the time, 24 at the time. I, I, you know, my brain's not even fully developed at that point in time. <laughs> so you just kind of say, oh, not Harvard, that either of ours are now, though. Right? <laughs> well, no, but I, I think at one point in time it was, and now I'm on the down, uh, I'm on the downslope of that. You know, <laughs> I always say that too. I think I was more mature and a better thinker back then. I don't know what the hell happened to me, but <laughs> so you were looking onward, and then you said, hey, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to beat a Wall Street, and then. Wall Street sucked or New York sucked? No, 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 not. I, I should not say that at all. I heard another podcast. There's the, <laughs> there's the, the lovers and That's the right. not lovers of New York. Yes. You love it or hate it. You know, my, my great uncle, he would never step foot out of that place. He, every, the whole world was, was just atrocious compared to New York City. But, um, but for me, it was, it was very difficult. We had, you know, a little boy at the time and, uh, you know, my wife was commuting two hours one way. I was commuting an hour and a half the other way. Um, there are just people everywhere. It's a rat race. It's, it's just, uh, it, it wears on you. It wears on you. So you have to love, just absolutely love and live and breathe the game there. And and we just weren't as into it as we needed to be, you know. Wasn't that movie about you, The Wolf of Wall Street? <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> were you doing that kind of stuff? I mean, not the sales, but were you doing the you were doing the computer crunching at, at a company like like that or I don't mean like that of course but I mean you were doing the whole stock market stuff yeah 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 it was all the stock market um I'd say that movie's a little embellished a little relative <laughs> to how it actually is there <laughs> but um the job and, and I, I think a lot of your listeners may not you know, understand this part of the world because I certainly did until I got into it but it's called a sell side as opposed to the buy side buy side are people that are actually buying stocks those are true investors sell side are are investment banks like Goldman Sachs JP Morgan Morgan Stanley um, so I worked for one of those banks and I produced research 
um, which actually is where I fell in love with the stuff that I'm doing now. Um, I didn't love exactly why I was doing all of it back then. It's like wasn't the best intentions, um, so to speak, when you're on Wall Street. But um, I loved the research process. And we did some, I worked for a fantastic guy. We did some really, really um, deep dive investigative type stuff, which um, the whole game on Wall Street is to differentiate yourself from the other analysts because you got like 25, 26 analysts that are covering the same exact company, like with ExxonMobil or something, which is, I used to be in the energy industry. When you have 30 people covering the same company, you got to say something different, right? Otherwise, you know, nobody's going to call your bank. Nobody's going to want your research. No one's going to trade with you. And ultimately, that's how the investment bank makes money. So, so we really dug deep and, and did a lot of like what I, what I considered to be very high quality research, which I learned about all of that while I was there. And now I've kind of taken it to what I do now. What do you mean by research? I mean, was it like, I mean, it's not like you were, um, you know, like national treasure going to the archives. I mean, are these computer deep dives? And did you like the research or did you like the putting the numbers into like the tableau stuff, you know, making it look pretty? What did you love so much about it that you said, I want to do more of this? Well, I think that in chemical engineering, what you learn more than anything else is problem solving. And so I loved solving problems. I loved coming up with answers, fact bases that, that, that I could then use and apply to solve problems. When you get to Wall Street and you're provide, and you're doing a research function, should I buy, sell, or hold this one stock? You have to come up with a thesis on that. And then you have to do deeper research than anybody else is doing to come up with some differentiated opinion that hopefully will work, you know? So when, when we were researching certain companies, we were going through all of their historical SEC filings. We were doing market analysis. So if you think about like the pharmacy market and you think about something that Adam Fine puts out where he does like these very long comprehensive reports on the pharmacy marketplace, like that's the kind of stuff that we were doing. Those those are actually called white papers or primers or something like that. We were doing those, but then applied to a certain company because ultimately what you're trying to figure out is, um, you know, what did the market miss? So the stock is trading for a certain price. What is the market missing? either good or bad. And if you figure that out first and you buy the stock, then you'll make money. If you don't, then you won't. So the one thing you should be learning from this entire discussion is don't be an active investor unless you're really doing this stuff because because other people are doing this. I was one of them that was doing this on the other side. So people think that I'm going to beat the stock market because <laughs> they're just looking at this, but I've got these little research ideas. I'm going to look in this magazine and see what they said back then and all that. But the problem is there's already people like you doing that. Yeah, lots and lots and lots of people doing that all across the world. And and honestly, even though all those people are doing it, most of them are still pretty average as well. So typically someone is doing it from home. It's like, um, you know, the, the saying, if you put like a thousand monkeys in a room and, you know, one of yeah. those monkeys is going to like, if you flip a coin, they're going to get heads every single time, you know, and, and that's more than likely it's kind of the selection bias where after the fact, it looks like, oh, wow, I got all these right, but it could have just been luck. So I'm not saying that there aren't people that are talented that, that out there that don't have to do all the work that we do. But one thing about Wall Street is like, you know, we're working till two, three in the morning. I'm working every Sunday. And so, yeah, just just be careful <laughs> for, for listeners. <laughs> Anecdotally, what might you have found? from research that the computer models or something were not finding. What's an example of like something you came up with that you thought was different, more different than the average 
company or person found? A lot of the stuff that we did with was with energy. And so if you think about oil prices, yeah. if you have the oil prices are what drives basically the stock price of all energy companies for the most part. I'm oversimplifying. But but that's the main call it what's called key debate or thesis is like what is the oil price going to be? So if you came up with some sort of model or you were you had some view on some geopolitical situation or something and you could predict what oil prices were going to do or not going to do. Back then there was a whole movement, I don't know if you're familiar with this called um, shale oil. So there was shale oil and gas where all of a sudden there's this energy revolution where we're doing fracking. You may have heard of the term fracking where you're, you're busting open the rock and, and gas is coming out. Well, this was like not a new thing, but the technology just evolved so much so quickly. And so there was a thesis that like, look, this te this technology is so good and it's going to get so much better that oil and gas prices are going to drop to rock bottom and they're going to stay there for a very long time. That was a very differentiated, not common, almost contrarian thesis back in 2008, 2009 when I was doing that. Gotcha. Or you could have figured that out and, and formed a pretty strong view on that by simply understanding the technology. So it wasn't data per se. It's very different from what I do right now. Well, not very different because we do some of this stuff, but it was more of like really understanding the inner workings of the technology, the science of the technology, and, and then coming up with a view that like, look, this is only the first or second inning of this. You know, the oil futures market thinks that oil is going to shoot back to $100 a barrel. That ain't ever happening. And if that's not happening, I'm selling all these stocks and getting out of here. And then that, that's that's what you, we the kind of stuff that we would do. Being familiar enough with the industry, you can say, oh, this equipment came out, but we know that people are still learning it. it it's, it's in its first or second generation. We know it's really going to be good equipment and it's really going to be able to be used. So we think because we know that, we think that this is going to happen then. Yeah, it's still an educated guess. If you're aware of the background, the inner workings behind the technology, and you come up with a view that you think that the next generation is going to be better, that the market is underestimating how good this technology is, but you don't actually have any knowledge of any of that stuff, that's just good research. What did you think you were headed into with the 22 pharmacies? I had no idea. I had <laughs> absolutely no clue what I was getting myself into. I was- um, You were just happy wife, happy life. Happy wife, happy life. Um, I was, uh, you know, the ignorance is bliss, whatever, whatever the right. saying is. Yeah. I mean, it really was because I was quite happy um, knowing absolutely nothing at that point in time. But um, when I got into the data, um, basically what I went in just knowing that I could only do so much. And I also went in knowing and seeing this through 17 years or at the time it was 15 years in corporate America type jobs that you can't have 10 priorities. It just doesn't work. You accomplish zero goals if you have 10 goals. So I needed to have, you know, a handful, maybe yeah. two or three and then, and then prioritize and see what was the most important ones. Yeah. And I spent, you know, most of my Wall Street career updating financial models. So I knew what are the most most important economic drivers. I could figure that out pretty quickly with any with any business. So I immediately came in and and you know saw and it was um, you know, we're getting into the Ohio story here, but very quickly saw a steep drop off in our gross margins, and I was just wondering like how could this happen? You know I've never seen a drop off from a few years prior to that. No, from one month to the next. <laughs> 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 it was. I think it was July of 2018, and it into August 2018. Or you picked the certain year where they were where they were dropping like a rock every month. No, 2016. 2016. Yes, I apologize. Exactly. Yeah, I'm losing track of time. Mm -hmm. 
I didn't pick anything. This is all just fate. Your fate, fate drops me fate, in the middle. Yeah. Whatever you want to call it. Sure. I, I just randomly get dropped. Right. Luckily or unluckily. Right. Exactly. <laughs> that story hasn't played out yet. Get dropped in the middle of um, of Dayton in 2016. August 1 of 2016 was when I started. That is exactly the same time when Medicaid uh, Mac rates started getting compressed. Gotcha. I had no clue what a Mac rate was. <laughs> I, I had no clue what Medicaid was. I didn't know what anything was back then. Did you know what a pharmacy was? I, I, I'd been to one before. <laughs> <laughs> I learned quickly, though. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So, so yeah. So, I, I, I saw this very steep drop, and and I realized very quickly this was going to be my top priority, is figuring out what in the world just happened between, I think it was July and August, the literally month one of when I started, or maybe it was June to July. I can't remember now. They didn't hire you because of this drop. That was just coincidental that you came right then when it started dropping. Totally coincidence. No, I mean, it, it, they hired me in because it, it because as you said, it's it's not fun and quite difficult to manage well, yeah. 22 pharmacies. Right. <laughs> so just, just from the sheer operational discipline, compliance, like all of that kind of stuff, inventory management, like that was the kind of stuff that they hired me in. And, and actually we did a ton of that stuff. I mean, that was, you know, a, a tied for number one priority is to do all that kind of stuff. But it, it ended up that it didn't really matter how much of that you did. It was it was going to create a better pharmacy, a better patient experience. And it, um, those were the things that you did, and those were absolutely necessary. Um, inventory management clearly creates you know cash on the bottom line, but um, but that didn't matter relative to the the how fast reimbursements were dropping. Rearranging the chairs in the Titanic. We had a lot of overhead that that I had to figure out how do we work this down? How we how do we better use technology? But I mean, again, ignorance is bliss. I didn't know it was impossible at the time. <laughs> I mean, the math just doesn't work on it, but we got so far, we took the organization so much further than I think we could have just because I had no clue that it wasn't possible. When you talk accounting and all that stuff, you were in charge of everything. Yeah, I, I was, but it, but it's not fair to give the impression that, you know, I was doing all of this. Um, I, had, I inherited an amazing team. How many full-time positions were there that were not part of the working in the pharmacies, would you say? I don't remember the exact number now, but it was probably like 15. 15. And you guys had an office or something? Oh, yeah, yeah. We had a small office. Headquarters or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yep. Gotcha. But we were, you know, you know how it is. We, we were always out on the road. Yeah, right. You know, you, you can't you can't manage remotely when it comes to this. So we were all out on the road. We had pharmacies all the way from, you know, the, the, the easternmost side of, of, of Ohio to Indianapolis. Gotcha. Okay. And all the way up in uh, close to Cleveland as well. So we, we were just always yeah. driving around. And At one point, did you want to say, I'm getting off of this thing? At one point, <laughs> did you say this was, <laughs> this was a bad decision for Eric? Was there a point of that? I mean, uh, to be honest, no, because... I, we were in Dayton. Right? That, that's, you know, I, I, I had I had realized that not only was this giving me the opportunity to actually run something, which is what I always wanted, yeah. but it was a big move for for my family. And yeah. and like, yes, I could have just picked up and moved us again, but I, I don't know if I'd be married right now. Right. I, I like to think that we, I would have. I'm joking, but um, that was a very very important part. I mean, uh, making the move for family was very important yeah. to me. So I was going to go through and and tough this out as much as I needed to. And and plus the the problem was so fascinating. I mean, 
I didn't realize the futility of trying to run 22 pharmacies with 40,000 scripts per pharmacy, but I didn't realize the futility until after a year, year and a half, banging my head against it, you know, um, maybe two years, something like that, because we were trying everything. There were so many things to fix and every one of them was making a difference. So there was never time to kind of like step back and reflect on that. I always think it'd be kind of fun to come over as like a Oh, what's that, you know, that guy on TV, the prophet or something like that? Because you know you didn't come in and cause any of that stuff. It's almost cool to come in and see that there's problems because you know that you're starting kind of in the hole instead of something way up here where a business is at the top ever and all you can do is go down. Yeah, that 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 is true, I guess, from a development standpoint. But um, I'll tell you, when, when you're reporting to a board of directors and, and an owner of the company, you know, the problem quickly becomes yours. And so um, I had to take ownership of that problem very quickly. I mean, maybe you get like a three to six month kind of honeymoon phase. And gotcha. then after that, that's my problem to fix. <laughs> and if I didn't fix it, which I didn't, I fail. Look, if it's just me, <laughs> I could like, I'm just basically reporting out to myself. Hey, like they yeah. slashed our reimbursements again. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. You know, I'm not going to fire myself. <laughs> we have to have a board of directors meeting. You know, I said, well, Mike then said to Mike and then Mike returned to Mike and said, you know, <laughs> That's all we get. So I knew that that we needed to turn things around faster. And yeah, and, and it felt it was feeling more and more futile because, you know, of the whole Mac rate setting process. And and and, you know, I, I just didn't fully appreciate I didn't appreciate it at all. Like when I came in that that the numbers are not contractually set at all and they have they're just completely made up. And so, you know, when you were in the middle of like that, that initial really steep drop, um, you just never knew when you were going to see the bottom of it. And I imagine that listeners are, are probably saying, yeah, we're still in it. And, and you know, we, we see a lot of the data. We know that we are, but it's like you can't go much lower than zero. Right, right, right exactly. When you knew it was going down, how much time of the crossover between this and you thinking, I may not be here within 18 months because I might be doing my own thing? Where does, how does that cross over then? I really did not think about that until almost the very end because it's 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 hard to put yourself back in my shoes with again a family that was very very tied to the Dayton area right. and no other job prospects. Yeah. Um so this very much needed to 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 work out. And so and when when you're saying like the going down part of it, it's very easy in hindsight to be like, oh yeah, they were just gonna keep slashing reimbursements, mm -hmm. slash, slashing MAC rates to to the point where it was gonna make a forty thousand script per year pharmacy not viable, you know. It's very easy to say that now. I didn't know that in the middle of it. I, I really didn't I, I guess I suspected that this is why why like they turning up the dial on this thing like this is getting harder and harder it's like it's whack-a-mole you you know you, you hit one and two others pop out and that's what it felt like but um I, I I guess it was it was less of that I expected something to be going down I knew it was getting more and more difficult but I knew we were getting better as well it was more of I felt like you know, you know, and, and, and you, you know, Antonio Chacha, he's, he's, um, you know, one of the most amazing people I've ever met. My colleague now at 46 Brooklyn and, and, and three axis for the listeners. Antonio was very, is, or was very involved in the Ohio pharmacists association. Yes. And yes. he came to you or you came to him at some point <laughs> and said, what the hell's going on here in the state of Ohio? Yeah. So that's a good story. So I'll, I'll tell you really quickly. Um, 
this goes back to the kind of, you know, uh, September-ish of 2016. Yeah. And right after I had figured out what was going on within Medicaid, I had pinned it all down to one bin PCN and the groups were all the different Medicaid plans that, that were all run by Caremark at the time. Um, and all of the MAC rates were basically at the exact same time, just crashed and cratered out. Yeah. And, and so, and then I did all this analytics on uh, looking at our data and I saw that like this was the only been in PCN, they were responsible for a large portion of our claims, um, but it was the only one that was experiencing this. So, you know, once I figured out that that was our Medicaid program, Managed Care Medicaid in Ohio, I um, I talked to some of the people that, that worked with me and they're like, you should really reach out to Antonio and talk to him. Um, you know, he's this powerhouse pit bull of a guy that, that's working for OPA, um, you know, and, and, and he was just like, you know, get this information into the right hands. And so I called him, we talked, it was a great conversation. Um, I don't think we talked for like another month after that. But in the meantime, I had called at the time, who was the director of, of um, pharmacy and Medicaid, Margaret Scott. I had called her and I had told her, look, I will send you all of our data. You know, I'm I just, you know, I will or as much as I possibly can or as you allow me to send you. But I wanted to show her that the exact same because what I was able to do is I was able to drill down to the exact same substitutable generic drug and say, well, this one. On from this month to this month went down by 60%, whereas in fee-for-service, which is state-run Medicaid rather than managed care Medicaid, it was, there's no change. And then I would show the ingredient costs. Um, you know, we could show our own. We could show NADAC. You can show whatever you want. And basically saying, like, there is no ingredient cost movement. There is no movement in your own state-run program. Explain to me why managed care dropped this by so much. And so I was very transparent with her on what happened. And she, after an hour, she's like, you know what you need to do? You need to call Antonio Chacha. <laughs> Isn't it sad that a Harvard MBA had to do hours and hours just to see that, oh, we're paying this for that. It'd be like any other, well, maybe not, maybe I'm just on my soapbox, but it seems like any other <laughs> thing that you would be selling, it's like, I'm a hardware store. We're paying the supplier $12 for a hammer. Oh, I can see it right here. But it took like- Preach, Mike, preach. It, it, it took- <laughs> All of you paying these wholesalers and stuff, millions and millions and millions of dollars. It took a Harvard MBA to say, this is what we're really paying for something. You know, the smoke and mirrors are disgusting. I mean, everybody knew this, like, or not, I shouldn't say everybody, but most pharmacy owners knew this was going on, um, but nobody else did. Yeah. You know? and, and Antonio says this better than I can, but, uh, or better than I do, but Pharmacy has, has, um, and I don't mean this to sound like negative to pharmacy in any way, but like any group that's advocating on behalf of themselves, there's always going to be something to complain about. There's always going to be underwater claims. There's always going to be that kind of stuff. And so going back over time, um, within advocacy for pharmacy, there was always complaints about we're not getting paid enough. We're not getting paid enough. We're not getting paid enough. And then all of a sudden one day it was like, oh, we're not getting paid enough. <laughs> you know, it was, it was more of like, I want more money to, holy crap, we're going to have to shut down. And it went so fast that lawmakers weren't going to just take the anecdotes anymore. You know, they're like, I've heard this story before, but the, 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 the extra level of panic didn't register. And so that's what we started doing. You know, working with Antonio, we started visualizing the story. And so we started creating these visuals to kind of say, 
you know, here's what we're getting paid in commercial, you know, all highly, highly aggregated, de-identified, you know, people didn't even know who their company was at the time or anything. Like there's, we had to be very, very careful with all of this. But here's what we're getting paid for the exact same mix of drugs, exact same utilization, everything. How come I'm getting paid this amount in commercial, this amount in Part D? This is before Part uh, DIR got so bad, and and this amount in Medicaid. And then even if you think like, oh, you should be accepting less in Medicaid, how come that wasn't the case like four months ago and it is now? And so you start giving that to lawmakers or showing that to lawmakers, and they're like, this makes no sense. And then they start asking questions, and it's like pulling this thread on this giant ball of like rotten yarn and and you get to like oh well the contracts technically you know we have this MAC rate that we can change at any point in time oh and the contracts basically only take the overall discount to average wholesale price over an entire year-long period so any individual transaction it doesn't really even matter what we charge you for that we just have to meet our annual guarantee and they're and, and lawmakers are like what is what is up with this market and with the space it just and and I kept saying that like you know, I had not seen anything like this until I got to pharmacy. In all in all of your case studies you did for MBA and all the stuff, you didn't see anything close to this. It wasn't just that. Like when I worked on Wall Street, I studied 30 to 50 different companies. And then when I went and I worked for a hedge fund, a family hedge fund, my portfolio manager, and I didn't love this at the time because it was a heck of a project, every single quarter when these companies released their earnings, I went through hundreds of companies to understand, get a pulse of kind of like the economy. Like what are companies actually saying? Not as what is, what is GDP doing or whatever, or what does the media say? No, what are companies directly saying? And so I had studied dozens and dozens, if not, you know, probably not hundreds, but dozens and dozens of industries, hundreds if not a thousand companies by the time I got to pharmacy and I came into this market and I was like, this is the most screwed up one I have ever seen, bar none. <laughs> you never saw anything as screwed up as pharmacy was. No, no, I, I, I never did. The only time, and this, this, I may have to explain this a little bit, is when I got to Wall Street, this was right as the world was falling apart, there was one really nasty deal or thing going on with investment banks where the investment bank side of the house, the ones that were trying to launching IPOs, you know what an IPO is, initial yeah. public offering, a company goes public and we got to sell it, make as much money as possible, sell it to the public. Well, the other arm of the investment bank would be the one that was publishing the research. Oh, geez. And back before Elliot Spitzer, they would communicate with one another, or at least this is the allegation, and then they would, they would before they were launching the IPO, or right when they were, they would launch coverage at like, you got to go buy this. And so that was blatantly illegal. And, and they put up what's called firewalls between the two of them. And so that whole thing actually went to bed, was put to bed after that. If you were an investment banker talking to someone in, in my job, you had to have a lawyer on the phone with you. The point of the story is I would tell people that the pharmacy marketplace, and I mean drug pricing and everything, yeah. remind me of that. It reminded me of investment banking in the pre-Elliot Spitzer days where it was just like, it was a free-for-all. Like PBMs can buy a specialty pharmacy and then, you know, mandate that you use their specialty pharmacy and then set the price for the drug as well in the contract. And the client had no has no clue that this is going on. So like that is the kind of stuff that the investment banking industry was cleansed of. So I'm telling you that this industry to me is worse than investment banking, which says something. <laughs> So, Eric, you work with Antonio. At some point, you give the benefit to your company of what you've done here, but you also 
found out that you're able to turn either 46 Brooklyn or three axes into enough money to feed your family. When did that crossover happen? Well, when I started thinking about leaving, and I have to give a major kudos to the owner of the company who actually let me out of my contract to go because he saw the passion that I had for doing this, was when we started learning about all of the public data that was available to help us tell the spread pricing story. So, and that's the data that we launched 46 Brooklyn with, this data that you get from data.medicaid.gov, CMS. Um, you can connect that when we realize that you can connect that data with NADAC to see these massive divergences in what states are paying within Medicaid programs and the cost of the drug. I had basically sat on that for about three, four months and I was showing everybody that would look at it, basically before the days of Zoom, scheduling calls to kind of show people, meeting with them in Starbucks. Look at this. Can you believe this? What kind of people? Just friends to tell you that you weren't nuts or were you working with pharmacy industry people? I was working with some pharmacy industry people. There, there were several people in Columbus that I was using to, uh, to illustrate, like, look, you don't have to look at pharmacy data. Like, this can all be public. Because Columbus is where... Um oh, yes. Cover yes. my meds or something? Cover my meds is there. Cover my meds is there. Yeah. Just there, coincidentally? Yeah. Yep. You're not a hotbed of like pharmacy no. lines there or anything. <laughs> I don't know if there is such thing, but so you're showing all the people this. I put this together and it's sitting on my laptop. At this stage of the story, it's on our website. You can go look at, you know, my, my whole personal story. But in, on January 3rd of 2018, my mom passed away from pancreatic cancer. Mm. And, and so I had just come to learn about all this public data before then. I was just starting to kind of form this idea in my mind of like, there's something bigger to be done with yeah. this um, than, you know, just kind of have it on my laptop and try to help a company of 22 pharmacies. Right. And and when my mom passed, well, I shouldn't say it's unexpectedly, but it's always too soon when it's, you know, it's cancer. She had been sick for 18 months. She was 18 months. She was 71 at the time. Which is quite quite long for pancreatic cancer, isn't it? Yeah, it is. She she was a fighter. She had a Whipple. She, I mean, she was like ninety pounds at the end. The Whipple just like devastated her body. I mean, that that is that surgery is no joke. I would never wish that on anyone. The, the surgery for the pancreas. Yeah, the, if you've looked up or you know ever heard of a Whipple surgery, it's like one of the most intense and invasive surgeries like known to man. Is what I'm the told. The pancreas is like right in the middle of everything, right? Oh, but they remove. Because pancreatic spreads so much, oh. um, they remove like a large part of your intestinal tract. Um, and so, and they have to stitch everything back together. And in some cases it, it, you know, it, it, it's terrible. I mean, it's, it was better than doing nothing, <laughs> I, yeah. I guess, you know, you always second guess it. But, um, but anyway, that's the decision that we made to move forward. And then and it was just like her body never really recovered oh, from that. And, that. and then, and then the cancer really never even went away and, yeah. and, and eventually she went and um and when she did it was just one of those light bulbs of like what am i doing you know like this could happen at any moment life's too short life's too short i don't really care about i don't have enough money and savings because if you have x number of months you're always going to want x plus two right i mean it's you never have the right amount of money to leave and do something on your own and plus i'm i'm a pretty i'm a you know pretty risk averse person or at least i used to be and so I always think, well, my who cares about my ideas? Like, no one's going to care about my ideas. They're stupid ideas anyway. And so 
I never really had the confidence until you're faced with death. At that point in time, it took it still took me another six months before I finally worked up the courage to do it. But at that point in time, I I just um, you know I went to the owner. He graciously let me on my contract. He wished me the best, and he saw the, the value that I that he thought I could add to pharmacy as a whole. And so he was he was awesome about that. And I left with no job, you know. And and there was trust me, it's very difficult to find operational funding for a nonprofit. <laughs> Nobody wanted to fund Forty Six Brooklyn at all, and so I really just did not care. I I, I had you know, an LLC set up on the side, but I wasn't doing anything related to this. I was like, people knew I knew I knew how to work with data. And so I was playing around with data, helping do some analytics for some people. I was getting by month to month, each month. But but what people don't know that have been through this, which I mean, a, a lot of your listeners have with starting their own business, but um, it was like one of the most fun, greatest times. I was the happiest I've been in my life, you know, because every month it doesn't, if you're making enough money to put food on the table, but you're doing what you want and you don't have a boss or any thing it was it just feels like you're free i've been kicked it seems so many times in pharmacy that i always seem to operate from the from the sense of anxiety and then that usually turns into depression because you wake up day after day and you're anxious about something when you were saying that you left without a job i was gonna question and say well were you in a depression you know is that why you left because you couldn't do your job anymore at the pharmacy and you needed to get out but it sounds like the opposite absolutely not i was on cloud nine because all the stuff that i was doing on nights and weekends you know playing with data I was now able to do that full time. And you said you were bringing in some money from different companies by doing a little research mm -hmm. for them on something else or whatever. So yeah, you knew you could maybe at least live or at least for a while on this. Yeah, it was, so it was 2018. That's I left in the end of June. I left, and then within one month, we created everything and launched 46 Brooklyn, named after your mom. Named after my mom. Yeah, she was born in 1946 in Brooklyn. And I remember that was the password to her computer was 46 Brooklyn. And so when I typed that, I'm like, that sounds really cool. And then by the way, like whenever I form a company that nobody will ever know exists because I really don't care <laughs> because I, I just wanted to do kind of some side consulting data work, that kind of right. stuff to kind of get by from month to month. I'm just going to call it 46 Brooklyn, but I'll never have to explain what it means. No one's ever going to ask me. And no one's going to file for a trademark infringement or something. You're, you're just like <laughs> a little tiny thing. Yeah, well, that, that didn't end up working out that way. Um, that's largely thanks to Antonio because he has so many media connections. So when we were putting everything together and we launched that that first report on Gleevec or generic Gleevec and the first set of visualizations that were really the impetus for you know, me leaving, which was the difference between, you know, what the drug is uh, getting paid for by, by, by CMS, uh, by Medicaid and what it costs. When, uh, when we put that out there, Bob Herman at Axios, uh, Antonio got in touch with him and he was fascinated by it. And he pulled us out of complete obscurity on day one and slapped us in vitals. And thousands of people came to the website on the first day. So you made it on Axios. And is this like one of those things, Eric, where you, there's always a point like where somebody goes to sleep 
and they wake up and something has blown up in a good way. Is this one of those stories? No, no. It, oh, geez. It, I, I'm sorry. It was, it was, we, because if you go back and you look at our page, which by the way, as a little plug here, we just launched a redesign 46 Brooklyn page. I saw it today. It looks fabulous. It's beautiful. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. If you go back to 2018, the second half of 2018, since I had no job, this is the benefit of having no job. It doesn't last forever. We were so prolific. I didn't have time to be like, oh my God, Axios picked this up because we were already writing the hydroxychloroquine piece. And the funny thing is like now, of course, hydroxychloroquine, everybody knows what that is, right? <laughs> Nobody knew what that was when we wrote about it because we were writing about this roller coaster pricing wave that hydroxychloroquine was on and how PBMs weren't passing through the savings on that. But when COVID came about, and hydroxychloroquine was all the rage that it could be a potential treatment. Yeah. That was our most read piece at 46 Brooklyn. Really? Like, yeah, everybody was going back and reading this like super nerdy drug pricing piece about PBMs and hydroxychloroquine historical pricing and Ranbaxy and, and like, you know, all the, the, the games that were played with, with that drug and the import restrictions. There's a whole amazing story. I'd urge you to read it if you haven't. To slow this down for a listener, because we kind of started in the middle on things. Yeah. The 46 Brooklyn. What that does is that's going to take hidden, difficult information, you guys research it, you put it into a beautiful article, but also beautiful graphics, Yep. and then the average person, especially the average politician who might have had their eyes crossed yep. when someone goes and talks to them about this stuff. Hopefully it helps. You're finally able to bridge that gap and let people understand what's happening in a cool, hip, very <laughs> nice visual way. Did I miss anything on that? No, no, you, you didn't. The only thing that I think that you've missed is that we are nowhere near where we want to be as far as really being able to do that. So clearly pharmacists can understand what we're writing. Yeah. Policymakers, Wall Street people, they can understand what we're writing, but we have not succeeded until the general public understands what we're writing. Mm -hmm. And, and we don't write to that level. It's, it's just not how we naturally write. We're writing for people that want to understand the inner workings and want to spend 30 minutes kind of like with a deep dive into this, like kind of, they want to tinker with the whole thing. Politicians? But, well, not the politicians, but their 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 staff and the people that are actually writing the policy are not the politicians. They're <laughs> they're they're the committee members and stuff like that. They're the ones that that are digesting like this kind of stuff. That's a hidden world that we don't know, but they've got all these people writing all this stuff. And and just just so you know, they are the hardest working, most brilliant people that I've ever worked with. And I've had a chance to work with them through my work in 3Axis and to sit down with them to help educate them and through the work in 46 Brooklyn. And I am, I felt a lot better about government, at least that portion of it. At the end of the day, there's politics and there's policy. Politics right now, especially, but tend to get in the way of good policy. But the people that are actually writing the policy, especially in the healthcare arena in DC, they are super, super smart and amazingly just dedicated to what they're doing and probably just as frustrated as we all are that good policy isn't actually getting through. <laughs> Michael Holt, the president of the American Pharmacists Association, was just on the program today. And we were talking about 
pharmacists calling the offices of these politicians. And he made it clear. He said, yes, do that. But the politicians aren't going to be answering the phone, you know. And now you're telling me that the politicians don't do any of the the bill writing and stuff. And so I think I'm right that they don't do a damn thing. There are different types of politicians, right? There are politicians that they're going to listen to a bunch of angry calls and they're going to be like, do this. <laughs> and so that is very valuable for pharmacists to call those types of politicians. And, and they really should kind of talk to either, you know, the APHAs of the world, um, the NCPAs of the world, their buying groups and their legislative groups, because they will know what types of politicians are what types of politicians. And so certain types will, will be, there'll be more bang for your buck when you pick, pick up the phone and call them one after the next and say, here's this, this like sob story, this anecdote, this whatever that will work. Other types, they're going to want to see the data. Other types, they're just not going to vote against the president or they're not going to vote against whatever they think. You know, so there, there, there are different types of politicians that are out there and you have to, you have a different targeted approach for, for the different ones um, on how you're communicating with them. And I was joking about the politicians not doing anything, but in actuality, they really should be doing what they do best. And that's making deals, I guess, with other politicians. I mean, honestly, I don't think I've talked to one politician since I've been doing this work. Yeah. When I'm in DC, I lay out the education on how things work and am responsive to answer questions for people that are basically on committees or staffers. And I'm like, look, you know, you can have any view you want. And more than likely, you're going to have a lot of different groups that are coming in here advocating. That's not my role in this. My role is really to just provide all of the facts. Now, if you are a pharmacist today, the facts are in your favor. <laughs> if you're a pharmacist 20 years ago, the facts probably weren't in your favor because the PBMs weren't there to take all the spread between AWP and, and, and the acquisition cost. But today, the facts are very, very much in your favor. And that's all I do is, is go in there and, and try to lay them out. Because they look bad and they're available and you're putting them out for people to understand. Yeah. All right. So we got Brooklyn 46 going. Your three axes is to say, I want to use this. I'm going to do some business stuff. In my mind, it's like a way to make direct money with direct companies. Is that right? Well, so yeah. So that, 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 and that story is not well known. So I'm very glad that you asked that question. So what happened was after about five months, I realized that 46 Brooklyn wasn't going to last for much longer. Um, and I had a lot of offers, job offers at that point in time. It wasn't going to last because you were getting popular, but not enough money from well, it. There was no money from it. There's, we have not taken any money from 46 Brooklyn as salary since we started. This is, it's all been volunteer work. The only money that we've taken or the donations that we have gotten, we've invested in freelance designers, which you'll see a report that we're about to put out this week, which we were trying to, create artwork so we can, people don't have to read the reports. They can just look at an infographic. Um, that website development costs money, <laughs> you know, stuff like that. We're paying freelancers to help us, you know, better, you know, amplify our message. And then we're also buying data. You could as a nonprofit, but you're not taking For any, sure. any nonprofit no. salary even. And, and that's what I wanted. Back in the day when we started, I just wanted the nonprofit. That's all I wanted. But I had Again, you know, with being a brand new nonprofit, I had no way or knowledge on how to get operational funding at the time. You know, it was basically like, oh, we'll pay you a little bit of money for this one project. But I'm like, no, I don't want anyone to have any editorial control over 46 Brooklyn. This is purely the stuff that comes out of the minds of Eric, Antonio, and Ben now. And I don't want any funding that has strings attached, you know? And so they're like, well, okay, but we're not going to provide you with just a blank check. You've only been in business for three, four months. And so I realized at the time that either I had to get a job 
which we know jobs aren't nine to five, right? So I had to go to job and then go back to doing this nights and weekends, or I had to start my own consulting firm and um, and actually look to bring in a little bit more funding, yeah. uh, uh, it, a little bit more work, right? And and get this balance where we were the ones that could control how much time we spent on Forty Six Brooklyn. So. This, like as an example right now, this month and last month, we have been spending probably 75% of all of our time. My clients on 3Xs won't like this, but this is true. We've been spending probably 75% of our time on 46 Brooklyn because there are a couple massive pieces that we're about to release in August. And they've, they've, it's the most in-depth data analysis and data management that we've done to create these databases. And so they've taken a really, really long time, but they're, they're, they're necessary. And had I been working a real job for another employer, I wouldn't have been able to tell, you know, Ben and Antonio, whatever, nope, whatever. Like we have more important work to do for 46 Brooklyn. And so we have clients that are very patient. They understand how we work. And so they're willing to wait a little bit longer in some cases. And so we, we, we have the flexibility to put things aside for 46 Brooklyn. What's an example of a 3XS customer or, or project? Yeah. So we did a, a report, um, what a, which actually I don't think a lot of people read, but I'm very proud of, on Nexium. We basically did... The entire, and not, not just Nexium though, Omeprazole molecule, which then of course was product hop to Esomeprazole. But, um, we did the entire history of like the, what is now 40, 50 years of history of this one molecule. And the goal was to take it through chronologically to show how did it become Prilosec? How much money was it made off of Prilosec? All of the, the patent games that go around, the product hop, the, the OTC launches, which basically is just another way of extending monopolies for certain drugs. And then eventually how they basically executed what's called the shark fin strategy is what the AstraZeneca team actually called it to stave off generic competition, which they were able to do very successfully for Nexium. And then Nexium, the healing purple pill, which is no different than Prilosec, turned into a $60 billion franchise. Um, so we wrote the entire story of that in 80 to 100 pages and very grateful that you know we were able to get support from Waxman Strategies and Arnold Ventures so this is John Arnold's um, uh, philanthropical foundation he he supported us in that like we went to him with this idea and he said we'd love that that is that is the perfect example of a three axis project of something that we'll propose We'll get funded by somebody. They still don't have any editorial control over anything that we do. It's a long project. That project probably took us like nine months from start to finish. But it is a very, very granular deep dive, way deeper than anything we can go into on 46 Brooklyn. And ideally, something that our clients will let us publish free to the public so everybody can read it. So gotcha. if you if you look at our website right now, every... I mean, we do some, you know, advisory work and stuff that doesn't result in published written reports, but the vast majority of our work results in published written reports. Some of your customers there is like a private company that wants information on this or something. That's like a consulting mm -hmm. thing. You'll do some yeah. of that, but other ones are the bigger, like a, what would you call it? A grant kind of thing or a... It's kind of like, yeah, it's exactly what it's like. It's more like a, like a project grant. And so we've done, we've done work for uh, the... The Pharmacy Association in New York, for the Pharmacy Association in um, Illinois, Michigan, Florida was a beast of a report. That was over 200 pages. But I highly encourage you and readers to scan through that because you'll see some things which I do not know why people, you know, we talked about investment banking and how rotten of an industry that is. Well, this is 10 times worse than that, what we found in Florida, because that was the first 
that was the first opportunity where we actually got claims detail from the state. Um, there was a public records request that was done, a FOIA request. Yeah. And, and that we, we actually got literally every individual claim. And then we were able to analyze how much did CVS pharmacy get paid on a Caremark run plan. Wow. Versus like, that's, that's affiliated with Centene versus how much did Publix get paid in Florida on that same plan for the same drug on the same day. Wow. And we published all of that. When you mentioned that these, like, let's just say grant companies, when you mentioned that they, gave to this and then you published the story. Are those companies at an arm's length enough away to do a report in 46 Brooklyn? Or would you say, I'm still not comfortable. Let's go to three axis. What will be your determining factor of how arm's length they have to be away the grant, let's say, before you do one finally to make some, well, will you ever take funding for 46 Brooklyn, or will it always be a grant? You know, I'm, I'm doing that in quotes because I don't know if that's yeah. the exact term. Will it always be a grant in 3Axis that they give you permission to yeah. use? Yeah, what 3Axis right now is designed to do is to give us the flexibility to to work on our passion project, which is 46 Brooklyn. And I think it, it becomes very important to divine the missions of the companies. So 46 Brooklyn's mission really is all about, and we've drawn like a very tight, tight box about this, is to provide these data visualizations or a database, or a spreadsheet that does analytics, or something that is educational that is not hiding the data. We can't necessarily do that with private data that we receive at three axis, right? But at 46 Brooklyn, everything is public. And so we can take multiple public databases, actually combine it with some databases that we've now purchased at 46 Brooklyn, but kind of do a bunch of, you know, as if you do enough work, we are allowed to actually go ahead, put that together into a visualization and then give that away. And then all the research reports are for is simply as like an, uh, hopefully fun to read, educational and somewhat snarky and sarcastic tutorial and, and, and case study. So we put out a report on the launch prices of drugs at the end of last year. It's the first one that comes to mind. There is a visualization, a tremendous amount of data work to show that the launch prices are increasing exponentially on new brand name drugs. And the whole report written around that is the context and our takeaways since basically, hey, since we got the floor, we're just going to tell you what we think, but don't believe us. Go use the visualizations and put together your own story. Go do your own sleuthing. We're not experts on this. You know, I wasn't trained to be a database manager or anything. If I can do it, you can do it. We're trying to get you started and then also give you some of our opinions while we have the floor. Okay, wait a minute. The light bulb just went on for me. And that doesn't mean an idea. That just means uh, I remembered something. I had in my mind this whole time we were talking sort of that you guys have these articles and then you were talking a little bit ago about having these graphics, you know, but I remember today when I was on your site in your article, you're like, well, yeah, Mike, that's what I've been talking about for an hour. <laughs> but the whole thing is you have a beautiful functioning spreadsheet slash database, right? Yeah. You've got this article, but you can take all the data and you can sort it, right? And do this and look up this. That's the whole basis of this, right? That, that, that's the basis. And so the, where we draw the line is, is if we can provide something to the public based on free public data that can be visualized. Yeah. It's a 46 Brooklyn project. And, and if we, if we, 
basically, if there is somebody that comes and says, hey, you know, I, I'm looking to... Um, you know, better understand the history of Nexium. Yeah. Look, I'm better. I'm, I'm looking to, and, and that's going to be a, a hundred page report. You know, I wouldn't publish that on 46 Brooklyn. Um, and there also wouldn't be any interactive data visualizations. It will be more of like just a, 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 a typical consultancy, you know, type research report. Um, if there is a pharmacy or in Florida that was saying like, we want to understand spread pricing and specialty pharmacy steering, then we will go ahead and like any consultancy will, you know, scope out the work and, and then we'll, we'll, largely probably do five times that amount of scope work. <laughs> we, we we have a hard time staying within scope with our with our consulting work or really anything we do but then then we'll just you know you know hand that report over to them and let them do whatever they want with it yeah so your thing was really cool and i remember now even though it was believe it or not even though it's three hours ago i still remember but you've got these cool graphs and databases that you can plug different stuff in yep. and beautifully it's it's artwork basically you can see what all this stuff is happening yep. on this beautiful layout that you guys made that we can use yep really yeah. cool and that was the the, the main reason and this probably sums the things up. I just had a gut feel that I wanted 46 Brooklyn to be a nonprofit. And it's not because of any tax reasons or anything. Like we've we've gotten such a pitiful amount of donations since we started <laughs> that there's no and we spent all of it um, until just recently. So but we're about to on on some some more data and, and visualizations and videos and stuff like that. But the main reason was because of the whole concept of a nonprofit is that I, Antonio, Ben we don't own it. Yeah. The public owns it. Yeah. And I did not want, I mean, I, I had, I guess I had kind of some suspicions that there could be something here. I did not want like bad Eric in the future to try to like monetize it in any way because I, you know, I, 15 years of just seeing how industry can kind of manipulate like corporate America can kind of manipulate different situations and right. stuff like that. And all the intermediaries in the healthcare space and everything and all these data aggregators. And I just didn't want to be another one of them. Right. You know, I, I wanted all this data to be free and I didn't want to own it at all. And so, yeah, I mean, like we have, we have control over what, what ideas come to our heads and what we want to publish, but we try to do as good of a job as we can to be as transparent about how we're thinking about things. We have some strong opinions and we express them. And then also back it up with all the data and give the data away and don't own it. And that that was the intent of 46 Brooklyn f from the very beginning. And the thing I think that people appreciate about that more and more is you're compiling a corrupt industry. So if you're compiling a corrupt industry where you're a for-profit business, people have to question. They say, well, are you adding to the corruption with the nonprofit? It's like, no, I'm, I'm just putting it out there like we see it. So Eric, 10 years from now, what's happening? What are you doing with 3Access, with 46 Brooklyn, or what other project, if any? I used to kind of stumble on the question to the 10 years from now, but ever since my mom passed, I really try to live in the present as much as possible. <laughs> um, I think that's the only way that you know we got to where we are right now. If you would have told me that we were going to build something where we've had you know 100,000 different viewers of our visualizations, I would have told you it was impossible. I am very strongly of the view that it is our job to put ourselves out of business. Mm. I'm not saying this because I'm extraordinarily idealistic or anything. I paid a lot of money and worked hard to get into Harvard. <laughs> 
that right now, I look at that as the greatest insurance policy I could possibly ever have because I can go get employment somewhere if I need to, you know, but I really believe that like we cannot pull any punches on what we do. You know, if we, if the right policy, the right market forces come together to create transparent PBMs that are doing this yeah. the right way, that um, where, where, where pharmacists are better integrated directly with payers and creating value directly for them, where the ingredient costs aren't being manipulated anymore, all the stuff that's going on. If we can have any part with our education that we're providing in eliminating that completely, there will be no need for us anymore. And we are fully aware of that and excited about that. And frankly, you know, there are a whole lot of problems out there. I, I, I tell people like, I don't have any like story, like my dad was a pharmacist, my grandfather was a pharmacist, so on and so forth. I don't have any ties to this profession. But when my mom passed, I knew I needed to do something meaningful with my life. And this was just laying right there. Like this, this giant problem that was mine, I inherited to try to, in whatever possible way I can to help fix it. And if this problem becomes fixed, like there's, there's a slew of other problems that are, that are out there right now and they're only growing. And so hopefully I'll get to participate in helping with something else after that. I would, I would, if 10 years from now, I'm still doing what I've done right now, we failed. Like, yeah. I don't want this consultancy to be big. I don't, I'm not good at managing people. I don't, um, I don't like it. I don't like spending my time like that. I like spending my time playing with data. And we have a nice small team that's, uh, we all work great together and we'll do as much as we can. And, and hopefully we'll put ourselves out of business here less than 10 years from now. The industry needs someone like you who they can look at and say, where is Eric's bias? Well, does he own a pharmacy or does his family or this or that? No. Well, is he... Is he owned by the PBMs or this or that? No. He's doing this for, for some reasons that don't seem to be connected to a benefit right up front for him. And the industry needs that because, especially with the data, you're putting together data. You don't have a dog in the fight. That's a pretty powerful discussion topic, let's say. People can find bias wherever they're yeah, looking Yeah, I suppose. It, right? right? They really can. We have clients in pharmacy at three axis that see the value in what we do for them. And since we are not looking to maximize our profits, we're looking to maximize our disposable time to play in the 46 Brooklyn sandbox. We have time to do that. And so, yeah, if I write something negative about pharmacy are, you know, are they going to get upset? Well, maybe a little bit, but we've done that. We've done that several times already. I mean, you read through our 46 Brooklyn stuff. We, we air all the dirty laundry. I mean, about, about not all of it, but I mean, all the stuff that we know about that we know to be factual and, and, and accurate. The reason why it works and the reason why they don't fire us right after that is because when you're a pharmacy, generally the story overall is very much in your favor right now. The story overall is with all the warts, all of like the little, you know, any, you know, yes, there are a handful of pharmacists that are out there that are, you know, trying to work around the typical wholesale PBM kind of structure and scheme and find some obscure manufacturer that set their AWP really high. So you can, we know all about that. And we talk about that all the time, right? But that is, that is the minority. That is the minority of what's going on out there right now around the fringes. And, and I can't even like, look, I don't know which one of those pharmacies are, are going to go out of business next month. And so they're only doing that so they can continue to serve their community. So who am I to judge? So the whole system is the problem. 
It's the way the pharmacies are incentivized. It's the fact that they even have the incentive to go out and do that. Like that's what we're going after. And I think that if you're, you are a pharmacy and you just want to get paid a good amount of money or a living wage, enough money, um, in order to serve your patients, then you're exactly in line with what, what our bias is. Like that is our bias that, that there should be no ingredient cost manipulation games. It should just be about serving the patient and getting the better outcomes. And and all of the incentives throughout the entire system should be aligned to do exactly that for the payer and for the patient. Well, Eric, such a pleasure having you on. Thank you. No, thanks for having me. This was wonderful. Any way that you can turn something like this into facts and not have to depend only on emotions. Emotions are okay, but not have to depend only on emotions and anecdotes. Yep. It really helps. So you're, you're doing a... Um, and I don't even want to say you're doing a tremendous job for pharmacy because pharmacists aren't looking for any favors, really. They're just looking to have the information out there and to have a level playing field. Yeah, exactly. The truth will set us free. Yeah. We need transparency. We need better incentives. That's what we're all about, writing about incentives, because we believe that's a lot of the research processes we talked about. Analyze economic incentives and you will be able to predict the outcome. Yeah. One thing that I would ask for anyone that that's interested, um, clearly all of this is free, but if you scroll down to the bottom of our website, there's just a little subscribe button. You can enter your email address, click subscribe, and we don't blast out things weekly. We only send you stuff when it's original research that we've published. So uh, we don't comment really. It's another thing 46 Brooklyn does, uh, uh, doesn't do. We, we don't comment on what's going on in the industry, all that kind of stuff, which is the, a great thing about you having these podcasts because it gives me the ability to kind of like talk a little bit about that. But we don't do that on 46 Brooklyn. We really just focus on original research and data. So if you're interested in any of that, just go ahead and sign up and you'll get something once to twice a month. Good stuff. Good stuff. Well, thanks, Eric. Yeah, thanks so much. You've been listening to the Business of Pharmacy podcast with me, your host, Mike Kelzer. Please subscribe for all future episodes. Thank you.